the blessedness of this hour rests not with us as individuals, but rests with the activity in which we're now engaged. The opportunity to offer to God our worship, the feeling of our disposition, and the heartfelt understanding that's ours as to what He has done for us and what He continues to do for us each day. Aren't we reminded in James 1.17 that every good gift and every perfect gift is from above and cometh down from the Father of lights with whom is no variable is neither shadow of turning. It is good that we can come together today and I probably would expect that you've noticed something about the title of the lesson today. It asks a question of us. Who is a Christian? Now, I'm not asking us to raise our hand to show to confirm, to validate that, I'm asking that question more broadly. If we were, let's say, to take a survey, a poll, of just a random sample of citizens in Putnam County, for that matter, citizens of the United States of America, and ask, are you a Christian? I wonder what we likely would see in terms of the responses to that question. This opening slide will be one that basically begins to ponder some of what we probably would anticipate. As surely as we are gathered together for worship, and we give thought to the notion, to the idea of who is a Christian, could I offer this reminder? That word, by and large, is a word that has a fair amount of confusion attached to it. Because isn't it so today, the word is used very broadly. I suspect that if you were to poll a random sample of the citizens of our country, Probably three-quarters would say, I'm a Christian. Probably. At the very least, it would be a sizable fraction. The question now comes, on what basis is that statement made? Is it factual? That's what we're going to address today, using the Word of God as our guide. We are not interested in the human definition of who a Christian is. We'd like to know what's God's definition and who is it, you see, that then would be satisfactory to that definition? No wonder then in light of that idea today, what do we then ask the question? What is the definition of a Christian? I think of what we would do well to do is at the very outset of the lesson is just to make use of, let's say, a typical definition that might well occur. And so here's that common definition. If you look up Webster's Dictionary and you look up the word Christian and you simply note what that definition is, it will read somewhat as follows. A believer in Jesus as the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament or in the religion based on the teachings of Jesus. You may pay particular note to the latter part of that definition. So this person who gives some consideration to the religion that's based on the teachings of Jesus Christ. Now, the human family has come in many ways to adopt some particular ways of looking at that definition. For example, some, as you'll see on the slide, are quick to say, well, I attend an assembly in which the name of Jesus is honored in some way, and I'm a Christian. For someone else, maybe they're quick to say, it hinges on baptism, whether as an infant or whether as an adult. So as long as their parents baptized them when they were a little baby, they can now still with confidence say, I, yes, indeed, I'm a Christian. For others, perhaps it's this. 
those who have a conviction that Jesus did live on this planet and did live in the flesh while here. Some people feeling along that line would be in a confident way of saying, I'm a Christian. Maybe others would say, well, I believe most of the New Testament. I do have a recognition that at least most of it's true. And maybe on that basis they respond, I'm a Christian. For perhaps others, it's a belief in heaven and hell. Oh, I'm sure there's an afterlife. And I know the words of Jesus are the only ones relative to that that bear an element in truth. And they're sure I'm a Christian. Maybe for others, it's merely the living of a good moral life. I don't murder anybody. I don't cheat on my wife. I've never stolen anything. Are you a Christian? Well, of course I am. Whether they ever attend church services or not, whether they ever have any other attributes connected to the New Testament, doesn't seem to matter. As you can well tell, the human family has broadened this consideration to where many things in the mind of many would allow them to say, I'm a Christian. Isn't it easy to see why there's such confusion? Notice man's definition is pretty broad. Could I reflect with you on Romans 4, 3, What saith the Scripture? According to this book, what's the definition of a Christian? So we aren't interested in Merriam-Webster's definition. We aren't interested in that which might be given on the Internet. We're interested in what do these books say? It is with that in mind, let's close that slide and then say... 2 Timothy 3.16 will motivate us in that which proceeds like this. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God might be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. With the Word of God being God-breathed and with it being appropriate and needful for correction, for instruction, for that which relates to righteousness, the definition for Christian is something that we should find in the book of God. It is with that in mind. Let's begin then to look at a few particulars. Highlighted first of all by this truth. Man's definition is bound to be inadequate. It's bound to be insufficient. It's bound to be lacking in terms of the conviction that the Word of God would present. The word Christian occurs three times in the New Testament. Three. That's it. May I suggest that we look with some detail at those three passages in which it's found and let the Word of God define who and who is not a Christian. Let the Word of God speak with authority about the nature of who then is a Christian. Would you be turning with me to Acts eleven twenty six? That's the one Brother Gary read in our reading a little bit earlier in the service today. Acts eleven twenty six again reads as follows. And when he had found him, he brought him unto Antioch. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first. In Antioch. Now, if you like to take note of the identity of the pronouns, when he had found him, that he is Barnabas, that him is Saul, or the one we later would come to know as Paul, 
You'll notice that he brought him to Antioch. So when Barnabas had found Saul, he, upon conversation with him, brought him to Antioch, this city located in northern Palestine. And it says that for a whole year they, Barnabas and Saul, assembled with the congregation there. And it says they taught much people. And then as the verse closes, this rather powerful designation is made. Those disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. Now you'll notice then the word Christian didn't start in the days of Jesus while upon earth. Jesus is already dead. He's already ascended back to heaven. And we are now a number of years after that. And only then did the name Christian come to be utilized. Only then did it come to be employed for describing certain individuals who were they. What were they? Did you note some of the features of the verse? Let's start down the slide. First of all, it says the disciples were called Christians. A Christian is a disciple. You and I may then ask, what does that mean? What does it mean to characterize a person or to identify an individual as a disciple? That word disciple literally means a pupil. It carries with it the thought of one who follows a particular religious teacher. And clearly in this instance, that's Jesus. Note again, the first six letters of the word Christian is Christ. So this is a pupil, a learner of Jesus and His ways. Now you might take note rather quickly that to describe this Christian as a learner... Notice how this verse also highlights that truth as well. For doesn't it say that they taught much people? So a disciple, this Christian, is also one who learns. A learner. By now, you and I have already begun to put in place a listing that we could use not only to examine ourselves, but certainly one that might be used to examine anybody that would wish to know Am I a Christian or not? Are you a pupil of Christ? Do you actively and with enthusiasm seek to learn from the Master Himself? As you seek to do those things, do you learn of His ways? In Galatians 1 verses 8 and 9, Paul was able to describe the thrust and character that there is but one gospel. Though we or an angel from heaven should preach any other gospel unto you than that which we've preached unto you, let him be accursed. There is then but one message to be learned. You notice a Christian learns a particular message. It's not some man-made matter or not some other thing that might be substituted. Christian is a disciple. A Christian is a learner of Jesus Christ. At this point, as we close this particular slide, aren't we then learning that some of those definitions that the human family has chosen to use are very much inadequate? Did you notice some of them, a person who merely is a believer in a good moral life, whether you have any attachment to religion or not, well, that doesn't satisfy these ideas. What's next, though? What else might we note? The next slide. Verse 26 again. Let me read it with a bit of emphasis on certain of the words. And it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples 
were called Christians first in Antioch. As far as that word Christian, you'll notice it is defined the disciple. These were members of the church. That's what's identified in the, in the verse, at least, isn't it? As Paul and Barnabas taught these assembled disciples, these that were in the church, it notes they were called Christians first in Antioch. So, a disciple, as a member of the church, is a Christian. So, am I a member of the church? If I'm not, I shouldn't refer to myself as a Christian. This rank-and-file citizen, if you please, if that person isn't a member of the body that the Lord bought with His blood, that which the New Testament refers to as the church, that at least according to the biblical definition, he or she would not have the right to refer to him or herself as a Christian. It is with that we might then observe this. Did you know? Here was a congregation, some distance from Jerusalem. There were already blessed disciples meeting there. But prior to that time, they weren't called Christians. They were just those followers of Christ. And then they came to be called Christians. A few additional thoughts on that slide. They would be these. So what constitutes being a member of the church? The New Testament, again, thankfully, very much assists and aids us to understand what God has revealed on that matter. Being a member of the church doesn't happen just by me declaring I'm a member. It doesn't happen as somebody votes me in. It doesn't happen just because I pay enough money that the elders are happy to welcome me. None of that qualifies. Galatians 3.26 puts it in these words. As Paul addressed the churches of Galatia, wasn't it true that to them he said, Ye are all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. If I'm going to wear the name Christian, I should have put on the name Christ, obviously. And that only happens if I was baptized for the rest of my sins. Now that again is very specific, isn't it? And that was the wording that Paul used in his teaching to the churches of Galatia. To put on Christ. Have I put Christ on? Or am I just wording the thought that it's I hope that I've done that or I wish that perhaps I had? As Paul makes those points to us through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Aren't we being reminded of how specific the Bible's usage of the word Christian is? Next on that slide, we all recognize that that baptism has prerequisites of belief. Notice in that what Jesus said, He that believeth and is baptized. Mark 16, 16. That baptism has prerequisite of repentance. Acts 2, 38. Didn't Peter say, Repent and be baptized? Baptism doesn't precede repentance, it follows it. We also remember the confession is a part of that activity as well in the wording of Acts chapter 8. And so we could again note, who is a Christian? This person who is a learner, a disciple, one who is a member of the church, having believed, repented, confessed, and been baptized for the remission of sins. You may notice as you come near the close of that slide, may we again observe that this so far is very different than what many would assert or at least suppose 
that a, an appropriate definition of a Christian is. It prepares us to look even further. Did you notice that the disciples were called Christians? There was a name then that was utilized to describe those who had participated in these matters. They weren't just called Christian-something else. And yet today, isn't it true that we seemingly frequently see this? I'm a Baptist Christian. I'm a Methodist Christian. I'm an Episcopalian Christian. I'm a Presbyterian Christian. Excuse me. I don't find those anywhere in the New Testament. Anywhere. What I do find is the disciples were called Christians. We have no authority, no right to augment that name with anything else. Either I'm a Christian or I'm not. There's no other adjective that ought to be employed. To do so means I'm legislating for God where He has not legislated. I have asserted for Him where He has not spoken. That's not only dangerous, it's wrong. Perhaps in that light. Let's look at the next occurrence where the word Christian occurs. And I've invited you to go to 1 Peter 4 as the next one. In verse 16 of that chapter, let's cast a bit of a spotlight on this wording. And notice how the word Christian appears here. The book of 1 Peter is a book that surrounds in many ways the topic of suffering. Christians who are in fact being greatly agitated and oppressed because of their faith. In the midst of that, we have a five-chapter epistle that not only provides us with encouragement, it provides us with a mentality to overcome those obstacles, but it has to do in part with the name that we wear. Verse 16, But yet if any man suffer as a Christian... Let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. Now, as was the case for the earlier text, I've asked you to note a few observations about that passage as well. It again begins like this, Yet, so we could read with fullness the prior matters of this chapter, and we could read about Peter designating some who were living a life unlike what they had lived before. They had obeyed the gospel. So they didn't drink anymore. They weren't given to lasciviousness anymore. They weren't given to actively doing what they once had done. They were now living differently. And because of that, they were suffering. There were others who would look with a degree of disdain upon what they were now doing because they weren't doing what they once had done. In the midst of that, Peter says, if any man suffers a Christian, doesn't that remind us we may be called on to suffer as Christians? Surely our first century brethren did. We read about some of them being put to death. Was it Stephen in that category in Acts 7? Wasn't it true many in the Revelation were in that category? We have been blessed for perhaps the thoroughness of our lifetime to live in a nation that at least would honor a person's individual right in regard to the freedom of religion. Who knows but what the day might come that that will be rescinded. I don't know. But at least it could well be that greater pressure shall be exerted and greater affliction may well be directed to those who do not subscribe to the things the world acclaims 
as proper and right. And surely Christianity doesn't fall in that category. Be that as it may, Peter said, if any man suffers a Christian. The next point on the slide is then this. A Christian is one who is fully dedicated to the cause of Christ. It's not a haphazard way of life. I don't serve him on Sunday and Wednesday and go my way the other five days of the week. My life is a reflection of his truth all the time. It's not to say I won't slip and fall, and it's not to say that I'll always make the best judgment. But my heart is to do that, and my heart is in that direction. And when I slip and fall, I will beseech His forgiveness, and I will try to learn better. If any man suffers a Christian, Peter was quick to say, let him not be ashamed. I realize well the world wishes to exert pressure to conform your behavior to what the world says is normal and acceptable and tolerant. When that doesn't happen, when suffering comes your way because you won't conform and bend, when that suffering comes, don't don't you feel ashamed? Don't you feel less worthwhile? Don't you feel as though God has neglected or ignored you or turned His back upon you? If any man suffers a Christian, let him not be ashamed. But how does the verse end? But let him glorify God. And now let's perhaps make a better rendering of the last three words of the verse. Let him glorify God in this name. There's really a better rendering than the way our King James translators put it. Again, the verse ended by saying, glorify God on this behalf. The actual Greek would better assert it like this, glorify God in this name. The name we wear, which again is the name Christian, that's the one that's been mentioned, is the name through which and by which we glorify the name of God. We glorify Him. We glorify His considerations. We glorify that which is what He stands for, His kingdom, our Savior. The name Christian, as you can see in this instance, is something that reminds us of this. We aren't ashamed as a Christian of Christianity. That too is something to reflect upon, isn't it? A Christian as a learner, as a member of the church, as one who is a disciple, as one who is not ashamed of Christianity. It's true, isn't it, that there have been some over the years, and perhaps many in number, who have a degree of insult, if you please, or at least a degree of disdain for the cross. They wish to hide it, to do other things, to cast a spotlight on something else. But yet, you and I recognize that Paul said it like this in Galatians 6.14, I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. The recollection, if you please, of His death, the understanding that we live through Him. I am crucified with Christ, Paul said, yet not I, but Christ liveth in me. For the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me, Galatians 2.20. Perhaps it is in that regard. We notice 1 Timothy. Because in chapter 2, verse 12, there's a rather sad end 
in description for those who would deny the Lord. So can you imagine a Christian who would deny the Lord? Now, you may say, well, surely we wouldn't do that. But some in the book of Hebrews were. They had obeyed the gospel, but under the pressure of their day and those who didn't agree with them, they were turning aside from Christ and living in some other way. And the Hebrew writer would tell them, you can't do this. You may not do this. You can't be a Christian living like that. Read Galatians 3 verse 12, or rather Hebrews 3 verse 12. As you and I close that slide, let's cast a spotlight on the word glory. It says a Christian glories in the name of Christian. Are you and I excited to be called a Christian? It's true, isn't it? There are many other things as designations we may wear in life. He or she is a wife or husband, an employer, an employee. We're a member of certain organizations, perhaps. No finer designation exists for anybody than to be called a Christian. Because it's in that that we glorify God. It's in that that we draw the credit, we draw the favor to the God of heaven. Who is a Christian? By now we can easily see the world's definitions fall far short of the biblical designation. In fact, not only fall far short, but often are incredibly misdirected. For that reason, near the bottom of that slide, I've asked you to note Romans 1.16. May I suggest that verse is the marching orders for the book of Romans. As long as we remember that passage, all the difficult passages in that book typically will easily fade into ready understanding. Paul said, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believeth, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Now Paul, as he was soon to arrive at Rome, he said, I'm not ashamed of Christ, and that surely would have included the gospel message and the name Christian. I'm not ashamed of it. In fact, in the verses prior to that, he said, I'm ready to preach it, I'm debtor to preach it, and thus, I'm not ashamed to preach it. The name Christian is a wonderful name. And though the Roman Empire looked with fair unfavor upon it, and certainly the Jewish members of the society had a great hatred for it. Paul, with a great deal of understanding, was one who said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. You and I live almost 2,000 years this side of that event, and yet the same matters, in principle at least, may come our way. A Christian is not ashamed of that name. We're delighted to be called a Christian, and we surely don't take it as an insult. It's at this point, let me share a bit of an additional observation. If you read in some writers, as they reflect on the name Christian, they will make the accusation, the name Christian was given to the followers of Christ, and it was given as a statement of denigration. It was given as an insult. It was given to tear down. That is not true. As we've already seen, the name Christian was given because it was the will of God that it be so, and he didn't give it as an insult to his followers. It was a matter of great honor to be called a Christian. That's the way Paul felt about it. That's the way Peter felt about it. 
Did you note again his wording? If any man suffers a Christian, let him glorify God in his name. Today, may we glorify God in the name Christian. Not seeking to alter it, to add something to it, to modify it, but to be today what they were then. They didn't have the encumbrance of modern day definition of Christian. They understood it better, I think, than we. As you and I close that slide, you may well keep in mind that this verse goes on to say something else, primarily as it extends into the next verse. We've just read verse 16. Look at verse 17 of 1 Peter 4. For the time has come that judgment must begin at the house of God. And if it first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey not the gospel of God? That verse makes the powerful connection between a Christian on the one hand is one who believes and obeys the gospel. This human definition we've seen just does not work. Have you obeyed the gospel? We noted earlier. It involves belief, repentance, confession, baptism. And this verse highlights that belief and obedience to the gospel. That's who a Christian is. It is with that in mind. How often does the Bible highlight the necessity and the critical need for obedience? Hebrews 5, for example, verses 8 and 9 reads, "...though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered." And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. It's those that obey him that will enjoy eternal salvation. Those who don't, notice, are not in a position to expect such. Maybe that idea of obedience in some way prepares us. Because you'll note one final thing. I mentioned earlier in the lesson today, there were three verses that mentioned the word Christian. We've only looked at two so far. Acts eleven twenty six 26, and 1 Peter four sixteen. I wonder where the third one is, and in what additional matters do we there learn who is a Christian? Well, that third one also occurs in the book of Acts. It occurs later now than the first one that we noted in, in chapter 11. But would you go ahead and be turning to chapter 26? Acts chapter 26, and in that passage, we will find yet another occurrence of the word that is this word Christian. To give you a little bit of a background toward this one, we find that Paul by this point had arrived to defending himself. Remember, he had been arrested. He was defending himself before some great authorities in the Roman Empire. He had already stood before Felix... He had already stood before Festus, and now he was appearing before Agrippa. In chapter number 26, allow me to begin reading in verse number 24. And as he thus spake for himself, Festus said with a loud voice, Paul, thou art beside thyself. Much learning doth make thee mad. But he said, I am not mad, most noble Festus. But speak forth the things of truth and soberness. For the king knoweth of these things, before whom also I speak freely. For I am persuaded that none of these things are hidden from him, for this thing was not done in a corner. Now so far, 
you appreciate the fact Paul was being questioned, or at least allowed to speak for himself, and in his audience was first of all Festus. But Agrippa was also there. King Agrippa. Notice how he's referenced in the next verse. Verse 27. King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest. Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. This final occurrence that we will consider this morning in its usage of the word Christian certainly speaks volumes about not only what that word conveyed in that day and time, but certainly what it does as well. I have reserved until the bottom of that particular slide some of the features concerning what was a response of Agrippa. Let's add a few details. Here was this heathen, this pagan ruler, and he occupied admittedly a notable position in the empire. He's called a king. And yet, as Paul stood before him, Paul addressed him and said, Believest thou the prophets? Let's go ahead and note, the prophets of the Old Testament had spoken about the richness of Christianity and had said something about the name. The name. Don't you find that encouraging? The name Christian didn't just pop out of thin air. It had been prophesied that it would be so. Now, the specific word Christian does not occur in the Old Testament. But would you revisit with me the book of Isaiah? Could I direct your attention to Isaiah chapter 62, near the close of that wonderful prophet? In the 62nd chapter of that book, we read the following. Verse number 2 reads as follows, And the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and all kings thy glory, and thou shalt be called by a new name, which the mouth of the Lord shall name. Notice that again highlights the fact the enemies of Jesus didn't give the name. The text said God would give it. God would call it. God would name it. And so we had Isaiah prophesying that at some point in time, a new name would be given to those that would see God's righteousness. Now you might take note, something was said in that passage about when the name would be given. That's significant. Please note, it says, "...the Gentiles shall see thy righteousness, and thou shalt be called by a new name." You would expect, based on that prophecy, that the name, whatever it would be, was to be given when the Gentiles saw God's righteousness. As you begin to thumb through the Bible, when did they see it? On the day of Pentecost, it was Jews that were gathered. Although the Lord had lived, and He had been crucified, and He had been resurrected, and He had ascended by that time, the Jews were the ones assembled at Pentecost, not the Gentiles. So we read further, and we come to Acts chapter 10. Cornelius is the first Gentile convert of whom we have record. Based on that, you would expect the time was right for the name to be given. And so look at chapter 11 of the book of Acts, verse 18. 
Acts 11, verse 18, reads as follows, And when they heard these things, they held their peace and glorified God, saying, that Then hath God also to the Gentiles granted repentance unto life. There it is. The Gentiles had received the message of repentance and had been responsive to it. It was time for Isaiah's prophecy to be fulfilled. Eight verses later, it was fulfilled. Acts eleven eighteen is what I just read. Acts eleven twenty six. The disciples were called Christians first at Antioch. The name Christian is what satisfies the prophecy of Isaiah sixty two two. The name Christian was given by God as the description for those obedient to the gospel, those committed to the Lord Jesus Christ, to those who, as learners and as disciples were given, possibly even suffer for the name of the Master. And now we come back to Agrippa in Acts 26. You'll notice in that passage, King Agrippa, believest thou the prophets? I know that thou believest, Paul said. And at this point we see Agrippa's reaction, almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. Even Agrippa knew you weren't just a Christian because you thought you were. There was something that had to be done. And he said, Paul, you almost convinced me that I need to do it. But here was even a pagan ruler who knew how special the name Christian was. And he knew he wasn't one, but he knew Paul was. And he knew that Paul was urging him and teaching him what had to be done. Who is a Christian? Who is a Christian? That definition from Merriam-Webster was certainly rather incomplete and very much misleading. If I may summarize that which we've learned today, a Christian, based on the three verses we've seen in the New Testament, where that word occurs, we've learned this Christian is one who's a member of the church, is a devoted follower of the Lord Jesus Christ, and thus in that obedience perhaps even is very much willing to suffer for the name of Christ. Not only that, this disciple is one who strives to be obedient in everything concerning the teaching of the Master, Jesus Christ our Lord. That perhaps causes us to reflect very briefly upon that great position of the confession in one's obedience to Christ. Do you believe with all your heart Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God? And that person just prior to baptism will say, yes, I do. That person is making a dedicated affirmation that Jesus is Lord and Messiah. He is the King of my life, and I shall follow Him always. Now, I know that's characteristic of the large number gathered in this assembly today. But isn't that a continual reminder of the marching orders we accepted And we signed up, if you please, to be a member of that volunteer army of the Lord that constitutes the church. But also, to those who are not members of that body, you aren't a Christian. Don't you want to be? Don't you want to have the blessings and the reward that come with that and the strength of life that it affords and the power of existence that it makes possible? Surely you do. And if we today could help you in that regard... All we wish to do is do what the New Testament says needs to be done. I'm not the one that defines a Christian, neither are you, but the New Testament does. 1 Peter 4.17 had said it requires obeying the gospel of God 
you need to believe. Be convicted that Jesus was who He said He was. Repent of your sins. They are what causes such grief to Him and to the Holy Spirit. As you've repented of those sins, turn aside from them. Try to do differently and better. But you need forgiveness from the sins already past. That forgiveness only happens in baptism. That's what Ananias told Paul. Why tarriest thou? Arise, be baptized, wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Acts twenty two sixteen. Today, if we could assist you by taking note of your confession, observation of your repentance, and assist you in baptism, what a joyous day of celebration for you, for all eternity it, it, it in fact will be. Perhaps you need to come back to your first love. Maybe you once knew what the name Christian meant and you lived it, but recently you haven't been. You know it and the Lord knows it. Maybe others know it too. You could be forgiven of that and doesn't that excite you? To think that these darknesses and these blacknesses, these blemishes that have characterized my choices, they can be done away with and I don't have to answer for them. I can have them remitted. Today, if that would be the cause in your life, the station as well, we'd be honored to assist taking note of, again, those matters and praying to God on your behalf. If we could make assistance with you today in those matters, we invite you to come while together we stand and sing.